Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Welcome back to So to Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and today I have a new guest on the show. His name is Todd Cashdan, and he is a professor of psychology at George Mason University, which is just right down the road from Washington, D.C., where I am sitting right now. And Todd is the author of a new book, The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively, which will be the topic or the main topic of our conversation today. Todd, welcome onto the show. It's so good to be here. So your background, Todd, you're a professor of psychology, that can encompass a whole lot. What's your area of specialty? What do you investigate? What do you research? Yeah, so um, I started the Wellbeing Laboratory as a grad student in 23 years ago. And we study all the topics people want to be having at cocktail conversations. So meaning in life, purpose in life, creativity, curiosity, psychological flexibility, social anxiety, mental health problems. And we just got a multi-million dollar grant to, to reduce the political divide in the country. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Speaking of political divide, let me uh, ask about the well-being lab. What's the most controversial or divisive thing that you study in that litany of things that you just covered? Well, there's no question it's human sexuality. So we had one of my favorite studies was I had this question of having so, so many socially anxious students in my classroom, which we can get to the mental health epidemic in the country. And I had a thought of how does a student or, or anyone who's highly socially anxious worried that they have a flawed character, it'll be visible to other people, and that will be the cause of them being ostracized or rejected? And what would give them a sense of belonging? So the question was, if you had a really intimate sexual encounter, it would mean that someone gave you access to the real, the full element of who they are, would the next day be easier because now you know at least somebody gives you a sense of, of belonging? Or would it be harder because when you leave the bedroom and enter the real world of social uncertainty, it'd be hard to navigate all those ambiguous social inter- uh, encounters that you have? And what we found, so it was, it was a perfect study because you had two competing hypotheses. We really weren't sure what the answer was. We and did the, did the hypotheses just come out of kind of curiosity or was there some sort of precipitating event that made you think, well, what do people actually think about themselves after they have a very intimate sexual encounter? I mean, this is the beauty of, of being a psychologist. Is, I know, you jerks, you get to do the fun stuff where you could just yeah. think, think something up in your mind and then figure out where it takes you. You talk to people and who are single and you talk about their lives and some people, they have individual differences in social anxiety. And then you combine these experiences with what the literature says of people that are socially anxious tend to have positivity deficits. They tend to experience fewer positive events and extract less rewards. So the hypothesis from the literature would say that it would be difficult to enjoy a social encounter involving sexuality, but no one's ever studied this before. And so what we found was, was that the next day after a sexual encounter, people's social anxiety dropped by about 10 to 30%, which is pretty high, and also dropped their social comparisons. So they made less self-denigrating comparisons to other people, or they were more compassionate to themselves when they saw people that were brighter, smarter, more creative. 
Now, what was interesting is we thought that emotionally intimate connections would be the most powerful thing. Like you're laying in bed, you talk about your vulnerabilities, you cry with that person, you physically entangle with them. But we actually found that the more physically pleasurable social interactions is what led to the least social anxiety the next day. And that we have no idea why that's the case. And nobody's built on our research since. And why is that controversial though? It seems to me it's like, or is it because it diverges from the literature that came before it? I think it's, I think we, we have still a very puritanical culture, despite, you know, the, the culture splinters in a couple of different directions. You have the rise of pornography, you have the rise of, um, of women's liberation, having the autonomy to have the same level of uh, freedom in their romantic lives as men. And simultaneously, you have this very conservative view of these are things not to be discussed in public company or maybe ever. And so the notion of bringing sexuality and like having the power of just a physically pleasurable experience gives scientific merit to the idea of, listen, it's okay to experience pleasurable sex in your life as long as, you know, you have consent and, you know, you, you, are, you are freely volitional in those decisions. Um, and so we're just, we're just kind of poking the bear about some of the social norms in society. So, so what it really diverges from is this sense um, puritanical, whatever you want to call it, that all sex needs to have emotional connection or is more valuable to the human experience if it has an emotional connection. And it might actually be the case that that is the case, right? It's just when it comes to the, the finding in this case, which was with regard to um, anxiety and status, is that correct? Yeah, social anxiety symptoms. Yeah, feeling less anxious in everyday that, life. That, that, that just doesn't play a role. It's more of the phys physical action. Um, aspect of the sexual encounter i'm assuming well think i mean think about the implications is have an amazing sex life and it, you'll have a you'll have better well-being and you'll have fewer mental health problems and it's it's uh you know it's anathema in a world where we should focus on very deep cognitive reframing of your thoughts and think about illogical thoughts replace them with better thoughts sometimes it's simple sometimes it's eat healthier sleep have good sleep hygiene have great friendships and have you know amazing sex and good adventures so then, The Art of Insubordination. How do we get to this book um, from that very different, or maybe similar, uh, you could argue, uh, area of research? Yeah, so the way I choose book subject matter is what's the topic that I wish there was a book on that no one's been talking about? And what's the thing that I'm talking about the most and it's coming up in my research lab in my conversations? And one of them was culturally over, I wrote this over the course of six years. So this is pre-Trump, pre-COVID. Um, you really weren't talking too much about mental health and social media back then. This is back when you had, uh, you know, the Arab Springs, where Twitter was this amazing vehicle for people to speak up against tyrannical regimes in in Libya. Um, but you you had an interest, a few interesting sociological trends. You had the greatest drop in religiosity in the history of the United States. You had um, the greatest social mo social mobility in terms of people moving away from their friends and family from childhood all over just to follow jobs. And you had lack of job security where people had an average of 12 jobs during their adult years. And so you add all of these sociological trends together with a few other ones. And you start to ask yourself, how can you live a more utopian, vision for your own life, even when it runs, rubs up against social norms that might be um, outdated, 
or dysfunctional for you and for the groups that you care about. Interesting. And you think in order to do that, uh, we need to encourage insubordination or dissent, essentially. Well, to some degree, this book is not about insubordination. It's not about rebellions and it's not about dissent. It's really is what are the mechanisms that lead to a more utopian society, right? Where there's less poverty, more critical thinking, um, greater respect for people with ideological differences, greater respect for people who have individual differences in personalities and backgrounds. And the research over 60 years is pretty clear that one of these really strong mechanisms that people aren't talking about is having someone that disagrees with mainstream thinking. Even if that person is wrong, there's some residual effect where they make the group a little bit smarter and wiser to think about their decisions. So you begin the book by talking about Charles Darwin, of course, the the man who, as your book says, didn't come up with the theory of evolution, but perhaps popularized it. And you talk about how the lesson from his life is that if you outlaw dissent, you slow the speed of cultural evolution. Can you tell us a little bit about how you get to that conclusion from Charles Darwin's life? Yes. So there's dozens of people over the course of a few hundred years that preceded Darwin with this idea of maybe there isn't a supernatural power that led to humanity and kind of um, changes in, changes in, in animal species and plant species over the course of time. This has been a long-standing thought by a number of creative, really visionary thinkers, but none of them were that persuasive. And so there's this, you know, I don't want to give away all the details, but there are stories of people being hunted down by police, um, police surveillance on people's households, house arrest, um, people that were physically tortured, people that were killed. And God, if you want to talk about cancellation in 2022, I mean, these were people that essentially were removed from society in terms of no one was going to hear from them from the written word or the verbal word. And there are lessons learned about why they weren't persuasive that go beyond just that society wasn't ready for those ideas. Because I think there's many creators in every generation where society wasn't ready, but they were they were persuasive in their descent such that the people said, huh, this is intriguing enough that I wanna watch this film, even though if I think it goes against all my values or a book or someone speaking. And I think, there's a lot of conformity mistakes in society. Um, it's not just it's not just about sex, age, gender, the ones that are the hot topics right now. It's really even thinking about well, how does how what should we do with knowledge about the genetic influence on mental disorders or personality traits, and what do we do about a society where we have opportunity rich and opportunity poor backgrounds? Some of the ideas that that you have about what to do with this diversity of experiences is not necessarily what everyone else is thinking. Just the majority's thoughts is not necessarily the best thoughts. Well, that was the whole theory behind John Stuart Mill's, I think, second chapter and on liberty, right? It was the idea that, and you spoke about this a few moments ago, right? That confrontation with heterodox ideas, nonconformist ideas, even if you won't ultimately accept them, there's something that can be gleaned from uh, engaging with them. It might be you change your opinion, not fully, but partially. It might be that you get a greater conception of your opinion, your truth, uh, with its confrontation with error. Or it might be that you do change your opinion. Uh, and you talk about in the book how often opinion change happens over time. It's not an immediate thing, but there are things that you can do in the process of dissenting 
or being a heterodox thinker that can almost expedite the process. Which brings me to the question about Darwin. What was the cultural environment or his unique tact that made him rise above the rest uh, in presenting these ideas to the to the general public? There's one person, not to give away too much, who posited a theory of evolution before whom him, who I think you write was put in an Iron Maiden. Yeah, and I've heard that phrase before, and I'm a big actual. I'm a, actually a big Iron Maiden fan. The band. <laughs> oh, oh, me as well. My God, I had I had the Eddie patch on the back of my denim jacket when I was in middle school. Oh no way! I was in a I was in a I was in a metal band for many years. Uh, we did Swedish death metal, which is like a melodic form of death metal. So you sing the choruses and scream the verses and and all that stuff. And you know, Iron Maiden was someone that we was a band that we looked up to. Uh, um, but anyway, you know, I, I, at the time, I didn't really ask myself what that name derived from. But the Iron Maiden is essentially a casket that you that has spikes on both sides of it, and then when you close it on someone, you impale them. And this is what they did to the to one of the early um, proponents of the theory of evolution. Yeah, it's even more gruesome than that. So think of like a vertical casket with metal spikes on both sides, and then you actually have an audience as you slowly enclose the person where the spikes impale them, and there are holes in the outside of, of this Iron Maiden, so people are cheering as blood is actually coming out of the holes and then smearing the ground. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. when pe Sometimes people bring up this a, a, a non-historically accurate comment, comment such as, there has never been more partisan animosity in politics than today. And I always, I say, listen, in the 1800s, you go into a duel with people with guns to decide the fate of whatever thing you're thinking about. And you go back a few hundred years before, you shove someone in Iron Maiden. So as bad as things are, I think it's really important. And this is, this is a real important element about dissenting and defying from orthodox ideas is while it is painful to be socially persecuted, we should think historically about what happened to our, our ancestors in terms of when they disagreed with the majority. And it's not just historically. I mean, there are certainly cultures today where if you dissent from the overriding orthodoxy or at least dissent from what the government presents as the overriding orthodoxy, you could get buried in the ground in a stadium as people pelt rocks at your head until you die. I mean, it's really absurd, crazy stuff. Um, you know. Yeah. Charlie Hebdo. What was that? Seven years ago. I mean, right. The idea that a, a bunch of cartoonists in a, a Danish office can be shot. Um, this is, this is, I mean, this, this is our modern culture. French, French office with um, Charlie Hebdo, I believe. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, sorry. You're right. <laughs> the, um, the, but, but getting back to uh, Charles Darwin, why wasn't he put in an Iron Maiden, for example? What culturally had changed or what had he done in particular that you think made his audience more receptive to what he was, was saying? Yeah, so here's at least three, three things that modern social activists can learn from Charles Darwin. One, he's, is he spent 20 years, so don't spend 20 years, but he spent time collecting an alliance of people that had power and prestige in the scientific community um, in the UK. And, uh, you know, there's, there was Darwin's bulldogs, that's what they were called. And they were, they had better oratorical skills than Darwin. So Darwin was not a good public speaker. You know, there's nothing on record of him on a podcast in terms of stammering and, you know, and it's just 16 seconds of silence when you ask him a question. But that's what it was like to talk to Darwin. He was chronically depressed. He was very fatigued. Some people believe he had, you know, 
um, chronic pain disorders. And he was not the, the most pleasant conversationalist. He was a good writer. And so he collected people that had complementary strengths to himself that were good at debating were good at terms of their persuasive speech. And they were also good at taking criticism where they had you know, titanium coated skin. Um, so that was one of the elements. The second element was the way that he wrote his books. He used the word we and us and this very communal kind of form as opposed to, I am the purveyor of this information. I'm the wise one. I discovered this thing. I'm challenging religious doctrines about how humans were formed. He's saying, we're in this together, that you've seen things that are similar to what I'm saying. And it would provide, third most, these really beautiful analogies and examples. So he would describe like the very details of, you know, insects crawling on the ground or pigeons in terms of why they have different shaped feet. Um, you know, you know, and as, uh, and this this ability to use stories and narratives and images um, in the eight in the late 1800s was a very new phenomenon. I mean, now every TED speaker has is they're, they're replicating each other. Everyone's got a story about their childhood, of how they were rejected and they failed and they didn't get into college or their basketball team. But back then, it was a very strange phenomenon to actually not just talk about the science. And there's a lot of other scientists. That could have been really, really, as you, as you, the term you use, expedite discoveries. If they were to follow Darwin's lead, the first person I always think of is Rosalind Franklin, who got left out of the Nobel Prize history, who really did the the X-ray calligraphy to figure out this, you know, the shape, the double helix shape of DNA, and she was cantankerous, difficult to work with. Now, this was a very misogynistic time. I was so. about to say, did it also have something to do with the fact that she was a woman? <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Every, so everything's understandable, but temperamentally, um, she was um, really high on quarrelsomeness, really high on neuroticism, and really low on openness to experience. So that's a tough combination to interact with. Um, Nico, with your point, um, I think one thing to take away from dissenting and disagreeing is when we're in the audience, we really should be good about separating the personality of the messenger from the message. So when we do meet people who are like Rosalind Franklin, who are quarrelsome and low in emotional stability and relatively closed-minded, that should be relatively inconsequential to can we still humbly listen to those ideas? So Darwin knew his weaknesses. He leveraged them. Um, in the way he wrote and then the way that he brought in people. He brought in people individually, meeting them one-on-one -on -one as allies, as opposed to, I'm going to release the book and hope that thousands of people, the public, are going to support this. One of the things that your book made me think of is this idea that my boss, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt talk about in The Coddling American Mind, which is they address identity politics, right? And they, they talk about how there are two forms of identity politics, broadly speaking. There's common enemy identity politics, and then um, common humanity identity politics. And they talk about how during the civil rights movement, one of the reasons Martin Luther King, although he was largely reviled in his time, it's it's hard to to remember that, you know, the FBI tracked him, there, there were parties when he was assassinated, you know, some really awful stuff. But he moved, um, he moved the cause of civil rights forward largely because he talked about shared values. We're all Americans, you know, we're all um, we're all in this together, essentially, whereas what John and Greg call a common enemy identity politics, it creates an us versus them mentality. And it's hard to bring the them around to your cause when you're calling them evil or oppressor rather than 
a friend who maybe just hasn't seen the light yet um, and needs to understand. And this is Daryl Davis, who's been on this podcast before. He's a, a black man who befriended members of the Ku, Ku Klux Klan in an effort to get them to give up their racist beliefs, turn in their clab robes. And he found a lot of success doing that. And many of those former clan members are now some of his close friends because he showed them through experience and demonstration that their prejudices about who he was just based on the color of his skin were wrong. So I think you can have people who are working toward the same goal, but pursue it tactically in different ways and therefore have different outcomes. I mean, I wouldn't have a job in communications right now if that weren't the case, right? Trying to understand what really appeals to people, meeting them with their values and trying to bring them along to this broader, um, this broader cause that we defend every day, which is the cause of free expression. So, Hey, Nico, can I, can I um, bust in with two thoughts that that kind of spins off for me? Sure. Um, there's this great work by Texera um, where they talk about... So, Texera, so, is that T-E-X-E-R-A? T-E-X-I-E-R-A, I think is how you, how you spell it. I don't even remember. I don't remember the first name because I just read these articles, hundreds of articles a week. <laughs> well, we'll try and go find it in the show notes. And, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and it basically compares um, Malcolm X's approach and Martin Luther King's approach in terms of, and how they describe it, the framework is normative, a normative disagreement with what the mainstream is doing. So that's Martin Luther King Jr. in terms of, all right, we're going to have boycotts. Um, we're going to send out flyers. We're going to have protests. Um, and then there's the Malcolm X non-normative approach where it's sort of like where you're spray painting, spray painting the people's houses. You're physically attacking people. Um, you are lambasting people's character. You are publicly shaming people. And well, didn't have it then, but now it'd be now it'd be like computer hacking, like doxing people and hacking into computer systems. And the question was, what would be the support for people outside of this cause for normative and non-normative forms of dissent? And it's really clear. It doesn't matter which country you're exploring. You, you know, normative dissent. People want like these very peaceful, bland, you know, Captain Crunch cereal kind of kind of uh, dissent against the mainstream. But here's where he ended with the discussion, which was. Perhaps as a hypothesis, the Martin Luther King Juniors of the world, they need the Malcolm X to serve as an alternative, undesirable and unlikable foil for how you could be arguing against the mainstream at the same time. And so perhaps Martin Luther King Jr. isn't as effective in terms of civil rights activism without the camp that's under Malcolm X of this non-normative approach of saying, okay, we don't really want that in our community, but just so Martin Luther King Jr. is looking a lot more attractive, a lot more, for lack of a better word, sane and interesting. And I can attend to that message because I can't attend and I'm not willing to attend to Malcolm X's message. Hmm. I'm trying to think of just modern parallels. And I'm sure as our listeners are hearing you talking, they're coming up with them in the head. Oh, I've got one from, yeah. I mean, one is you have these, um, the, the splinter group of people, this anti-abortion group that are calling themselves abolitionists. And so these are the people that basically believe is now and do we believe that abortion should be illegal to anyone and, and, you know, even perhaps incest or rape, including those as caveats, but you should also be charged. The woman should be charged with murder. And that what the road has been for people that are anti-abortion for the past, you know, for the past century has been the woman is a victim in this situation as well, because nobody wants to be in a scenario where you have to decide, um, 
to any med any any medical procedure where you have you have anesthesia in the first place, and that shift to saying not only are you not a victim, but you are actually um, someone that is actually an illegal enemy of the state. Um, to some degree, the the anti-abortion movement could could be could actually get more traction by this extreme element being there of saying, listen, you guys are wacky with this idea in terms of the idea of you're going to put someone in jail for life or give them the death penalty because you're concerned about the death of the unborn. And then all of a sudden, the other people look a lot more pragmatic and sane in listening to their message. And so there's something to be said of it might be an interesting... It's a hypothesis that so it you open up the Overton's window really, really wide so that people uh, who are maybe at the, in the middle of that window look more appealing, perhaps. Right. And this is in the aftermath of Trump. We're seeing this as well as it's like, OK, you have people that seem somewhat sensible. Um, they're not they're not you know, their language isn't, isn't littered with ad hominems. And so at least you're on task in terms of governance. And that sounds so much saner than a Trump who's leading the country. And that's the danger is you can, while this might be useful for persuading if it's for a benevolent reason, if it's, there's a benevolent reason, this can be used in terms of as a force for creating, you know, real problematic dysfunctional practices in society. The abortion debate is interesting. It might be a, a good case study in like how to dissent effectively from either side, right? So um, I, I I read and listen to the stories in the news about the abortion debate. And one of the things that strikes me is that the coverage or the messaging from both sides doesn't seem to be appealing to those on the other side. For example, I, I saw a Facebook post from from um, Planned Parenthood in the state of Pennsylvania, or maybe it was Planned Parenthood uh, National, that said that led off by saying, "We love abortion." It makes me, and it just makes me think, yeah. like, you know, is that really appealing to people who are on the fence of this issue? Because they might think, you know, you go back to what was it, the Clinton era? It should be safe, legal, and rare, right? Which, if you're trying to appeal to moderates or at least move them slightly to your side, is probably a better messaging than "We love abortion" and. You know, if you love something, then maybe you, I, you know, I, it just seemed, it seemed like it wasn't really reaching people. And then a lot of the messaging is around, um, from the pro-choice side is around, um, you know, choice and personal medical decisions. And if you, if you think that pro-life people are, uh, you know, probably more vaccine skeptical too, then you, you, they, they would perhaps see hypocrisy on the idea of medical choice. You know, it's my choice what I do with my body. Um, there's also the question of the not engaging with the the crux of the argument from the pro-life side, which is that this is a life, right? So regardless of what you think about your medical choice or bodily autonomy, it's like, what what's your argument for this other human who we see as living inside you? And then and then vice versa, the, the pro-life side just doesn't invade uh, engage with the argument that this is a medical decision. You see, um, you see states going so far as to pass laws that don't consider the life of the mother. Um, and it so it all becomes about the child and then not about the mother. So it's, it, I just see it in this debate. It's, I don't see anyone using effective communication strategies to reach people on the other side or to dissent effectively. If, if by effectively you mean, bringing people along to your cause. 
Yeah, so maybe the best way to use this as as an analog is actually go through a couple of the steps of if you were in the minority position where you lack power, you lack status, um, you, demographically, there aren't people that are like you um, in this situation. How can you be influential? And so one of the first steps is to show that you are not on the outside. You're one of this group that you're trying to persuade. And so when you have... Um, I'm just going to be, I can't do both sides consistently, but it's so, it, so if you have someone that is against the choice, like women's bodily autonomy and choice, and this is going to be decided by the state. If, if I was a psychological consultant for them, I would say you want to hone in on how you are pro women and the women that are speaking, be very clear in terms of, um, how you care about women's health, how you care about children that are already born, how do you care about children that are already in schools? How do you care about um, impoverished families where they, you know, they're barely able to make ends meet? How are you gonna deal with you know, children that are in orphanages right now? Focusing broadly on families, children, and women first. And then this becomes just one leg of this large table of things that you're focusing on. That would be the strategy that would actually be more effective saying, listen, I'm a woman. I care about women's issues. So this isn't just about relating to, you know, long-standing religious reasons about what should or shouldn't be done. We're not bringing morality in per se. This is this is under, underneath this very comprehensive broad umbrella of women's issues I care about. And I think that after the Supreme Court decision about Roe v. Wade overturning it, there was a big failure in terms of not emphasizing other issues about women, family, and poverty. Um, because if you're not gonna focus, you know, people people look for hypocrisy. Like we're all hypocrites, but we really look for the hypocrisy in other people. And if I was a psychological consultant, as you were saying for Planned Parenthood, um, I agree. I, so I didn't, I've never seen this advertisement before, but I would actually argue that the best advertisement would be the opposite of that is say, we despise abortions. We would love a society where this doesn't happen. Um, here are all the things, the reasons of why an unfortunate situation happens and you have people in unfortunate situations and it's in the same category of great adversity that every one of us has experienced. Um, you know, we've lost parents. You've, you've exposed to people with cancer. You've been exposed to people who are childhood sexual abuse survivors. And in this realm of how much suffering there is in society, this is one more that we're trying to reduce. And if you went from the arena, as you're saying, of there's a common humanity that we all suffer in our own unique ways with our negative life events, you can you can grab people to say, listen, I don't agree with you on this one, but damn, do I understand that life is freaking hard and this is another hard situation. How, how does social media make it hard to actually tailor your message to your audience, right? Because you think about Twitter and you have a visceral reaction to the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade or perhaps Biden's decision to cancel some student debt, which just happened today. You think about what you think about the issue and then you almost like in a cathartic manner, just blast it off to your 2000 Twitter followers who have various personal beliefs, maybe come down on various sides of the issue. Uh, it doesn't force you to actually think about who you're trying to reach, what messages might resonate with them, articulate shared values or shared history. You talk about how appealing to history is important in, in bringing people along to your side. So it almost trains an advocate to rush to judgment, to rush to you know, 
you know, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to inculcate the sort of things that you talk about as being necessary to argue and dissent effectively in your book. Yeah. I mean, the problem with social media and particularly thinking about Twitter, well, it's, it's always, it's always useful to remember. And I wish that mainstream media would remember this, that less 10, less than 10% of the culture has even stepped foot into the land of Twitter. I mean, when I, <laughs> you know, the idea that you would go there as a repository for news is just absurd. Um, I think, you know, it's really important to think about what, you know, what are the incentives um, on on a particular platform, even here on a podcast. The incentive there is um, extreme speed to get factions that support you. So you're, you're to, only to get a faction to support you, you have to lean far as far away as possible from moderate, sensible, comprehensive, two-sided messages. Right, a two-sided message is basically to say. So we'll go with the example of of Biden trying to remove, you know, remove uh, student debt from the past. The two-sided message is: Listen, we want to remove some of, you know, some of the debt and the burden of people that can no longer afford their whole, own households. We have a a incredible um, sociological number of people that are unable to live without their own, without their their previous biological family, living with their caregivers. Um, society is having a drop in creativity and innovation when people don't have financial and social independence. Um, the pro so the problem on social media is you quickly respond with some very witty thing of, well, what do you do with the people that took jobs and paid off their student debt? And it was really hard to go, really hard to make ends meet. And now they took a job that's that where they're underemployed and doing something that is beneath their skills and education because that was the only pathway in order of paying for college. But everything's covered there. And so when you have these caveats, to give an effective message from the Biden camp, if I was a psychological consultant, is I would address this before someone addresses that on social media. Like your two-sided messages, you have the footnotes that say, listen, here's a subgroup you're going to mention. And we can anticipate that. And this is why we did or didn't include them in who we're going to care for in terms of student loan forgiveness. The failure to do that and giving a one-sided message is less persuasive, especially when you're in a power position such as you are the president of, you know, one of the largest, most important countries in the world. Yeah. It's, it's essentially steel manning the other side's argument before saying, you know, presenting the best form of that argument before saying, but here's why that argument is flawed or here's why that argument is wrong, which is difficult to do because it means actually investigating what the other side believes if you're going to do it in, uh, effectively, right? Yeah, I'd actually make the, the bar a little bit lower than Steele Manning. So, that's, so I think what you're describing is the optimum way of debating. I think the, the, the um, satisficing strategy for dissenting is at least giving a couple of caveats of where your idea has flaws because everything is imperfect. And so by you being the, the purveyor of the problems in your, in your storyline, in your message, you get to set, you get to continually return to the fact, listen, I mentioned that. Thanks for bringing it up again. Let me flesh it out even further. So it's think about it as having a couple of footnotes are where there are boundary conditions to where your idea works and doesn't work. How, how similar is that to a passage in your book where you talk about how expressing vulnerabilities or caveats or just being candid about the challenges that 
you face can actually bring people along to your cause, almost as a way of making them more sympathetic to you as a person. Uh, you write that there's, you quote a philosopher, um, Alan de Botton, probably butchering the name, it's a French name, who said, it's deeply poignant that we should expend so much effort on trying to look strong before the world when, all the while, it's really only ever the revelation of the somewhat embarrassing, sad, melancholy, and anxious bits of us that renders us endearing to others and transformers, transforms strangers into friends. And when I think about that passage, I think about Mitt Romney. <laughs> 20, 2012, right? He loses to Barack Obama in the presidential election. He's described as a robot, very mechanical, very political. If you work in the communications world, it's like it, you just can't get him to connect with people on a real level. And it's almost because he didn't want to reveal his real person. He wanted to reveal right. what he thought a politician looks like. And then a documentary is produced about his life that followed him on the campaign trail. Um, and you get an inside look at this person and their insecurities and yeah. their challenges and who they are as a person. And they, they, they start to look a little bit more like you. They, Hillary Clinton is, is said to have had the same problem in the 2016 campaign. People just couldn't connect with her. She was almost a little bit too robotic. And what you're saying here is one of the ways to bring people along is to be a human, more or less, in front of an audience, which is difficult, right? Because it, it, it requires you to share your vulnerabilities. Yeah, there was a great study, that I'm going to link this back to, back to um, Mitt Romney, of uh, Brockman. Did, was was wanted to know how can you canvass effectively for um, transgender rights in terms of can they have access to the bathroom that matches the gender that they identify with in North Carolina? And what they came up with was the most effective strategy to get people to sign on and support the rights for people of, of transgender to actually go in the bathroom that matches their gender identity was not to beat them over the head, not to tie them to a particular politically party, but for that person that was canvassing door to door to reveal a personal story of their own ostracism and rejection and say, and ask them the people that they're knocking on the door of like, Hey, have you ever experienced like thinking of like high school and when you're all, you know, your awkward twenties of like, had you have a period where like you didn't fit in and you had a difficult time, like kind of like, like, who are you? And you felt like an imposter and that conversation about connecting about rejection and social persecution and difficulties with figuring out what your identity is separate from what you should be or ought to be. That conversation first led them then to kind of into this message of, listen, here you have a whole group of people that they're not fitting in anywhere and it's difficult for them. And it was the emotional residue of talking about shared adversity carried over into the conversation of, you know what? I don't just see them as an other as someone who's transgender, because I'm not transgender. I see them as another person that's experiencing difficulties. Shared experiences. And I don't want anyone to experience social difficulties. But it's really it's really about the narrative about personal hurt. That's what induces people to be more receptive to your message. Your message still has to be good. But really, when it comes to minority descent, the only thing you can ask for is you're looking for an open, receptive audience where they're willing to be persuadable. Like, can you get them to sit in their seats metaphorically or literally 
And then it's up to you to have a persuasive message, which is an entire different set of strategies. And Mitt Romney, as you were saying, was very problematic because everybody knew he was Mormon, but he was so afraid of touching this third rail. He made it into an issue that wasn't an issue. If he was someone that said, I want you to know it's really hard being a minority in the country is there's a lot of religious people. There's a lot of people that aren't religious. And I want to tell you not about my belief system, but what it's like to try to make ends meet and socially connect with people when people despise you, when they hear about something that's core to what you care about. And if he played with that realm, as opposed to hiding from it, I suspect he would have gotten quite a number of extra percentage points in the presidential race. Yeah. What he tried to do essentially was to fit in with whatever he envisioned in his mind a presidential candidate looked like. But we all know when the emperor is not wearing clothes. We know when they're not being their authentic self or they're trying to hide something. Um, and it, the irony is that we all have those vulnerabilities uh, and we are all self-conscious about those sorts of things. And acknowledging them, in fact, makes you more like what people want or what people know actually exists in the office holder of the president presumably, right? Yeah, yeah. And if, you, you know, if you're a teacher in a classroom, the idea that you have to have this um, steel, stoic, Spock-like experience and you're just providing knowledge is not the way to reach students. I mean, the way to reach students is when you talk about how, why this experience is like so emotionally poignant to you and why you're talking about slavery and why you're talking about Ukraine and why you're, you know, why you're interested in World War II and you start talking about your grandfather or your grandmother who kind of maybe, you know, maybe you lost a family member in the war and they were raising kids by themselves. Those stories are the entry point into getting students to kind of really listen and then retain knowledge and information. But we've really trained everyone to be quite stoic, which is not the strategy to win people over. Yeah. There's a reason that when uh, animal rights groups ask for donations, right, they show a video or a photo of an animal that they've helped who looks like they're in distress, right? And and I believe there's studies on this as well. I This book that everyone in the communications department here at Fire Reads called Made to Stick, and it, and it talks about how if you talk in the abstract without telling any stories, uh, philanthropy is uh, not as effective as if you just tell one story of one person. And this goes back to the Stalin quote, right? What, like one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, right? Right. Yeah. You put some emotional meat on the bones. And it's hard to tell a million stories, but it's a lot. You can tell one story, for example, and people can extrapolate from there. Maybe you add a statistic on the end to say, no, this isn't just this one person. This is happening to thousands of people as well or thousands of dogs whatever it is yeah and not and not to hit every single uh culture war topic in one single episode but i mean one of the problems right right? (laughs) (laughs) one problem right now with um the diversity equity inclusion um you know strategies that are being deployed in organizations and in my world in university and college settings is exactly what you just described is as opposed to revealing the stories of individuals in that exact organization, the history of that exact organization. There's sort of this generality of we have this problem, you know, you know, we have a, you know, a patriarchal system. We have, we are a white supremacist organization. That's, that's what, you know, that's the nature of our structural system. And when you get critical thinkers who are saying themselves, but is this exact, is exact, you know, satellite plant of this company, 
is there racism here? Is there sexism here? Because um, I realize in society there there are problems. Question, but this might be a place where we are overreporting it because I haven't heard anything in this exact place. Um, and then how does it how does that compare to just general people not fitting in because of their personality, their physical appearance? Um, you know. Just there, and just just being a you know an immigrant and and not having a good grasp of uh, the English language. You know, you, when you make these pragmatic comparisons, that people can understand that you are listening to the other side. That's where you get. You don't just get the public the public nodding of the head. You get people actually willing to put the sweat equity into the cause that you're interested in. And we really have to be careful because I think a lot of the social activism of today they're really they're really honing in on support is defined by the amount of people that give likes or actually nod their head and sign up for something as opposed to, but would they be doing it if they weren't looking for likability within the group? Yeah. You talk in the book about how people instinctively have a go along to get along attitude and don't want to be seen to be apart from the group. Although I will say, I think there's a strain of person um, and I've always kind of fallen into this category that just if 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 everyone's going right, your instinct is to go left, or if everyone's going left, your instinct is to go right. And you talk about this in the context of Rick Barry. Um, so if, would you would you share with our audience a little bit about that story and and Wilt Chamberlain and and how that fits into this like go along to get along type mentality that works against. Um, dissent and insubordination and ultimately perhaps in this case progress or at least scoring ability that is yeah so this is the land of sports and um and most people who are listening to this probably have never seen any professional basketball player um act like a little kid and take a basketball between their hands and then rock it between their legs and throw a shot into into the hoop um, from between their legs most people throw overhand but little kids instinctively throw underhand because they they instinctively kind of know that if their physical strength is not sufficient to get the ball 15 feet above their head, um, rocking it back and forth between their legs gets enough physical momentum to get that ball further up. And there are a number of physicists that have shown that if you want to increase the probability that you were going to get the highest percentage of points by throwing a basketball into a net, you are better to throw it underhand than overhand. But there are right now, I think there are three players between thousands of college basketball players and hundreds of professional basketball players. I think there's three people that throw underhand, um, even though statistically and scientifically, we know this is the most effective strategy. Rick Barry um, in the 1970s um, had the highest free throw percentage of sh shooting the ball and getting the ball through the net of everyone in basketball. And he was in the, he's in the Hall of Fame. And when he retired, not a single professional or college ball team asked for his advice of how can we get people to get more points on the board. And it's worthwhile kind of taking a step back for a second and saying the number one thing as a basketball player on a team is to score points and win games. And the way to win games is to score points. So the idea that you would, you would reject a strategy that works because you don't like the way it looks like it like yeah Shaquille O'Neal famously said he'd rather shoot zero percent than shoot underhand he said yeah I'm too cool for that 
Yeah, there's there's a number of players on record that said um, I would never shoot like a girl. Um, I would, you know, I would look like a wuss. Um, I would, you know, the, I would, I don't want the crowd to be against me. Um, and then Wilt Chamberlain, interesting, like, so he has one of the greatest basketball players of all time, considered always in the top five. Um, famously scored uh, over a hundred points in a single game, which will never happen again. And he had a very horrible free throw percentage. So somebody fouls you, you get to the line, you get two free throws, maybe one if you got a two point shot. And it was incredibly low. And then one season, um, he was given a trainer that taught him how to shoot underhand to increase his free throw percentage. And that subsequent season, um, he had a huge spike in performance, one of the best years of his entire career. But there were people that they call it the granny shot because it's like what a grandma would do. And so there were people in the stands, like men that would dress up with a grandma with a gray wig and a pearl necklace and a skirt. And they would scream, scream at him and chant against him. And he, the greatest basketball player alive at the time, um, incredibly physically attractive man who, who attracted lots of women and lots of fans, um, decided, I can't deal with this level of rejection and criticism and turn back to his old way of shooting poorly overhand. And if you have, if you are one of the best shooters in the history of sports and you are winning championships and you're winning MVP trophies. And still the social conformity is so much more attractive than standing out and being exceptional. Like what does that say about the chances the rest of us have the, the mortals among us about standing up and being nonconformist because we found a better way of doing things. Well, it just shows that our heroes are pretty much as insecure as we all are, right? I yeah. mean, he, shot, he was shooting 38% from the line. That's and right. And he started shooting underhand and he, it, it went up to 61%, you know, almost double. Uh, you're you're talking about, ten, you know, 10, 15 more games the team is winning per year. Yeah, I mean, an incredible amount. I mean, 61% is still low, I guess, by professional standards, but it's still astronomically higher than what he was shooting before. And he gave up on it because he thought he didn't look cool or because he was mocked. Um, And your number one goal, as you say, in basketball is to score points. So it's just an incredible demonstration in my mind. And it's a perfect example that we all want to look cool. We all want to fit in. uh, We are all slightly insecure and we'll often try and fit in to our own personal or professional detriment. Well, there's, you know, Nico, there's also another interesting maxim, which is the more money and prestige that you have in society, the more you have to lose. And so we say to ourselves, well, the billionaires can say whatever they want. The CEOs can say whatever they want, like the heads of the titans of industry, but they have the most to lose by being criticized in terms of um, what will happen to, you know, their valuation of their company and their employees. And so, to some degree, there's nobody that's really immune from these conformity mistakes in terms of choosing subpar practices over what works if society or the groups you care about think that it's a bad idea, even if it's a good idea. So it, it's incumbent upon dissenters like to, for people to be more socially courageous and speak their mind because this you you are actually one of the elements that leads to cultural evolution and that's how it you know you can view this as a very meaningful task when you when you decide that your group is going in the wrong direction and you're going to say something because you care so much about the group not because you don't care because you do care you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the vitality and longevity of the group you also talk about status quo bias 
which is we just do things because they've always been done that way. And I think that's more or less what you find with free throw shooting in basketball. But it takes a special person um, who may just have an aptitude for coming up with creative solutions to problems uh, who will propose a new way of doing things. Like, I don't know if Rick Barry was the first person to shoot underhand to figure out that maybe that's a better way to increase my percentage from the line. But there's also the person who decided for the first time that they were going to go over a high jump bar backwards. I forget what it's called. It's a something flop. My wife, who was a high jumper in college, will probably get mad at me for not remembering what it is. But if you encourage dissent, if you encourage creative thinking, if you remind people that status quo bias is a real thing, you got start you start to encourage people to think outside the box. It's just another way of putting it, which in and of itself provides um, opportunities for progress, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, and think of more mundane examples, right? For for how many decades have organizations revolved around brainstorming sessions in a group? And then all of a sudden, somebody realized, you know what? People are silencing their ideas. We're getting fewer ideas and less creative ideas. But when we ask for people's ideas ahead of time, and we actually collect that information, and then share it in the group anonymously, we don't include the names with those ideas, you get people to debate more freely, you get a larger, a larger, you know, number of ideas, and you get people that are more likely to tinker and play with ideas because they don't know they don't know which idea is tied to the socially attractive people in the group, the people that they want to hang out with, the people they think are cool, the people they think are physically attractive and witty. And still today, I mean, every faculty meeting that I go to at George Mason University, we talk about it in a group setting. And I keep saying like, over and over again by email, listen, we have to collect the ideas. We know this, we know the science. We're a group of scientists. We know that if you if you raise your idea in a group setting and everybody sees you, those people that are more likable, their ideas will be treated as if they're better than the more introverted, quiet, and anxious or marginalized people in that group. And still, you know, people listening today are probably a whole number of them are in organizations that play this. So you can just So you're almost arguing in that case for the sort of dispassion, I forget what you call it in part three of your book, uh, analysis of ideas. Uh, the So you're almost stripping away all those argumentation tactics to bring people along your side so that you can an analyze an issue or an idea dispassionately. And or, what, yeah. or like, what format do you take that? Like, it almost like puts the suggestion box, <laughs> essentially. Well, you can imagine um, collecting it on a bunch of post-its. You get somebody with really good handwriting, so you can't even tell the handwriting. They write out all the ideas down, and they get posted all over the walls in the group you go in. And all you're doing is looking at what ideas do you like and offer your ideas for how to tinker and build and improve upon what's been what's written on all the walls. You have no idea who said what. Um, I think of this as how can we remove all of the proxies of intelligence and creativity that suck, that we end up falling prey to? So we tend to think that loud people, assertive people have better ideas. We tend to think that people have- Tall people, right? And isn't that something people. that you find? Yeah, tall research? people. Uh, people who have more social effervescence and charismatic have better ideas. And we think that people that actually um, speak, you know, much you know much more fluidly and fluently that they have better ideas but none of these variables that i just mentioned are correlated with the quality of quality of ideas and so no if we can keep on reminding ourselves that an organization or a group of people will will, for, will perform better
So I realize we're almost at an hour here, and I do have a couple of more questions, so I'm going to try and get to them. You, you write that acts of insubordination don't usually win over members of the majority right away. Instead, they sow seeds of doubt, and these mature over time into new perspectives. And one of the things that you posit is that there's this 25% rule, that it takes a solid block of about a quarter of a population espousing a minority position to transform a group's beliefs or behavior. But that can't be the full story, right? Because you have plenty of public opinion polls where you find there's 25% support for something uh, that never ends up gaining majority support and might actually regress in one way or another. So what does it actually take? Maybe it requires a minimum of 25% to start taking off, but, you know, Christianity was a minority position before it got to 25% in the United States before it or within the Middle East, I should say, before it took off and to become the, the religion of the West, right? So like, what's the, what's the additional element of that story that takes it from 25% to 51%? Yeah, um, great question. So it's not a story. It's, um, it's about six to seven studies that actually have found this. Um, random groups of people, organizations, as ideas move around, as people figure out that about 25% support this idea, um, it starts to increase in mass. It starts to collect start to collect collect more characters and the alliance gets bigger and bigger. Like underneath that 25% mark, these ideas often don't have a chance. So there's a couple of strategies that are pretty effective. Um, one we, we mentioned earlier, but it's, it's, it bears repeating, is if you think you're going to have detractors for the idea you have, meet with those people individually so they can save public face and they can actually offer their criticism of their idea before the group meets or they can actually realize of like, listen, now that you're seeing me face to face, is the idea the thing that you have a problem with? Or is there something about the way that I'm sharing this idea? One-on-one, -on -one, people are much more receptive actually sharing transparently exactly what it is that's bugging them about it. And it might be something that has nothing to do with the idea. It might be, it might be the way, you know, your, your arrogance. There's a lot of people in organizations or group settings that are like, listen, just bide your time. And in 10 years, you'll have all the power you want to say, and all your ideas will stand a chance. And I believe that's a very antiquated notion. I think often newcomers come in and they are not staying in their lane and they pop into a group and they realize, oh my God, I can see all of the flaws of how you guys communicate. Um, just, you know, just the idea that I see all the women sitting over there by themselves at that side of the table. I see um, the, the, the same three people that are, that are around the head of the organization on that side of the table. And all the new people are scattered around with their heads down because they know no one's listening to them. The newcomer will recognize that. The people that have been there that get to sustain their power will ignore that ignore that information. And so we need to find a system where we can pay attention to the messages and not the messengers. So one is doing it by individually. Um, the second part is try to figure out where is the problem able to showcase its flaws objectively as opposed to being an op-ed. And so when you can provide numbers or a clear behavioral residue of why something works or doesn't work. That's gonna be extremely persuasive. And label when it's an opinion and label when it's actually been test-driven and there's actually support behind this. This gets back to two-sided messages. A lot of people just share, shove all their ideas out there. But when you say, listen, here's my, you know, you see me say it here on this podcast. I'm like, here's a hypothesis. We don't know the answer. And here's some science that actually supports this idea. That makes you, not only more 
um, more trustworthy. It shows that you're actually less biased because you're clearly defining things. And it shows that you're competent because you're able to discern between um, what has facts behind it and what ends up being subjective. So what, so what you're saying essentially is that once you get to 25%, it gives you a shot at reaching majority. If you know, There are other factors at play, of course, um, but some of the tactics you talk about in the book give you a better shot than some other tactics that people might use. Yeah. So think about school bullying. One of the best strategies, and this started off in Canada, the, one of the best strategies for starting school bullying was not getting more than 25% to be on board of saying, hey, being kind and generous and compassionate is the way for adolescent boys to behave. This is, this is, like, this is a much better route than being bullies. What they did was they would recruit football players, wrestlers, cheerleaders, and they would go into classrooms as peer counselors and talk about their experience of being insecure and why they think that the school would be better um, if there ended up being that there was you know, less verbal violence and less aggression that was happening towards other people. And you should stand up if you see someone getting bullied. And the idea is, so it wasn't just 25%. It was socially attractive people who are particularly recruited to be part of that 25%. So the title of your book here is The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. Maybe should ask this at the top of the program, but insubordination, dissent, and defy are three different words that sort of get at similar things but aren't the same. So can you talk me through your thought process and thinking about those and how those three words intersect with the main thesis from the book? I'm so glad you said this. <clears throat> So insubordination was chosen on purpose because in a military context, this is like the worst thing you could do. You are the black sheep. Um, if you look at a dictionary definition, insubordination is you are in a hierarchical structure, you are at one of the lower rungs, and you have challenged the rules, the norms, or the guides of how you're supposed to behave in that hierarchical structure. And so the idea of, you know, a private or lieutenant challenging a general is anathema in the U.S. Now in Israel, in the Israeli Defense Forces, they actually have, they train you is that if your leader, your general has problematic ideas, anyone can take the helm for that particular decision. But that's not something in, in the American, American military that we've actually adopted that practice. So this is about minority dissent. Um, that this whole book is about, you know, when you lack the power and the status, which is most people in society and, and even people that have power, they don't have power equally in every domain in their lives. You have your household, you have your friends, you have your romantic life, you're in your neighborhood and you have your work and your gym or your, or the, or your, your local, you know, pub where you go for a drink. And so it's important to realize is that power is constantly fluctuating and it depends where you're looking at things. And so do you have a normative position then? And you talk about good and necessary trouble. Is the good and necessary trouble essentially dissent because of what it does for the group? Helps you have a have a better understanding of your position, forces you to confront contrary arguments, presents new arguments that might exist that could uh, lead to cultural uh, evolution or progress. Because, for example, you have at the end of your book uh, Hannah Waters, who is a student in high school who. Uh, back in August of 2020, when schools reopened in her community, uh, she complained publicly. She talked about how the schools had, quote, ignorantly opened back up. 
And you talk about how a generation of young people like Waters who care so damn much, they rise up and stand on behalf of what, what they see as progress. You could see people on the other, you know, on the other side of that debate saying schools need to open up because of what it's doing to educational progress or, and student mental health. Um, protesting, for example, against school closures in Arlington, Virginia, where I was living in 2020. Um, so for you, is it good to have normatively people on all sides of the issue, you know, speaking up and dissenting and maybe even insubordinate, uh, being insubordinate? So how do you think of, how do you think about and walk that line? Yeah. So, um, so there's, there's a lot of important nuances here. So one of them is, um, to what degree is there a contribution element that is beyond the self? So you're transcending the self and you are trying to, you believe there are dysfunctional norms and ideas and you are challenging them without, without increasing the suffering of other people intentionally, or even, or even at the, at the higher level, even unintentionally. So in that, in that exact case, for example, at that time, that was kind of at the, at the close peak of COVID. So that level of descent of that student changes one year later one and a half years later, it, it becomes it becomes more questionable as you know the rate the rates of COVID actually declined over time. Now, where's the magic number? I definitely don't know what the magic number is. So I'll give you I'll give you a contrary example. Um, you had those truckers in Ottawa that were blocking um, any supplies to being exported to Canada because they felt that there were the, the mass mandates were too strong and it was time to open up the communities. Why was that problematic? Why do not why do I not view that as principled insubordination? Because what they weren't thinking about was at the other side of the ledger, what is Canada losing? Who is suffering because certain it, certain imp, exports are not making it into the country. So um, blood banks went dry, uh, medical supplies went dry. And so the idea that the mass mandate itself, this cultural issue was more important than actual people survival in hospitals and in, and, and in family settings was, you know, not acknowledging um, the level, the level of of impoverished food supplies as a result of them trying to block the pipelines for stuff getting in. Let me know if this gets to the crux of what you're saying, that word acknowledging. You talk about, we talked about this earlier in the podcast, acknowledging the other side as a way to make your point or bring people along to your position. Um, let's say in the COVID case, August, the, the dissenter is someone who says, I recognize that not wearing a face mask will cost lives. I recognize um, uh, that COVID is a real problem in America, but the CDC is looking at this from a public health perspective, but there are other trade-offs that come into play if you only consider this from public health's perspective. The loss of jobs, the uh, effect on student mental health, the um, you know the students who aren't getting their free lunches because they're not in school, things like that, and say, and they say, on balance, given these trade-offs, I acknowledge your positions. I still think it's better that the schools open up. Is that principled dissent as you define it in the book? Absolutely. I mean, no question. So this, so there's, I have an equation in the first chapter, right, where the the key ingredients are you're deviating from deviating from the norms. You have a level of authenticity, and there's a sense of contribution. So this is where we get to the authenticity part. Uh, to what degree are you dissenting because it wins you favorability points in your group, which I, I view as not being authentic, but it's, it is a it is a core 
human because you own, own, own the libs right yeah <laughs> right right Twitter. exactly yeah just like this just this just this is just my way of gaining status in a tribal conflict versus what you just described which is this is authentic because i i have thought about the costs and balance the costs and the trade-offs of making this decision and this seems to be the proper way to go um you know on the on the end of being problematic in terms of their communication for principal dissent was when the CDC came out, it's one of you know it's one of their worst moments, and said, "Listen, we realize that COVID right now is at astronomical levels. We realize that masks are going to be helpful in reducing the transmission, but um, unrelated to our mission, we're going to say if you're in racial protest right now, the CDC supports you." That was it was one of their worst moments because it was this is not their area of expertise. It makes no logical sense, and as you've said before a large proportion of society was able to see to see that this was a nonsensical non-pragmatic argument and now you've raised questions about everything you've said before and i think it's worthwhile keep to bring this issue up of exactly where they had a problem so that it doesn't happen again because we will have other pandemics and we will have other 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 areas of public health where we need people to focus your mission is the science not racial relations society both those things are important, but don't mix the two because then you end up losing the battle where you're an expert on, which is public health. Yeah. Well, I don't want to keep you much longer, but my, as a final question here, so the, again, the book is The Art of Insubordination, How to Dissent and Defy Effectively. And for our audio listeners, this is also available on YouTube. I have a question about the cover. So I've been thinking a lot about the cover. It is a uh, cloudy landscape. There is something, it looks like an origami paper hat of some sort that's being floated up by a hot air balloon over what look like two waterfalls with a chasm in between. And the other origami paper hats, and they could be something else, look like they're about to fall down the waterfall while this other origami paper hat that's being floated by the hot air balloon <laughs> rises above the waterfall. So I have to ask you, what is what is this a metaphor for? Why did you choose this cover? I'm assuming the publisher came up with the idea. No, no. Um, I, I, I will, if anyone's interested, I will send you the hundreds of covers that I went through um, <laughs> because it was really important for me if it's the art of insubordination. And I believe there's an art and there's a science to this. And this, this isn't just science. You know, you just just the questions you've been asking me, right? There's, there's not clear definitive answers of here is the exact line where it becomes principled versus unprincipled dissent. Um, so that, that was an artistic creation of that red balloon signifies the, the dissent. And that origami is this creative idea that's actually kind of, you know, that you're kind of bringing forth to the other side to actually help make um, the world move in a more aspirational direction. And so it, it needs the help of that. That red balloon is like all the strategies put together is you're able to make sure this idea is elevated, it's listened to, it's attended to, and it's got a shot of the highest probability of being integrated into society. It might also be a message to the other origami hats that are about to go down this waterfall that there's a, hey, there's a way to get over this waterfall. Just find yourself a big old red hot air balloon, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, these, those are, you know, the other origamis on the other side are, they're the lemurs, is that we, t we, we are so big about social allegiances and social alliances that we often allow ourselves to think um, in a much less intellectual and rational manner, just because we don't want to lose status. And I'm suggesting is that um, 
be willing to be courageous and take a little, uh, take a few hits to live a more meaningful life because for yourself and then for the benefit of other people who don't have your temperament and your courageous actions. Well, if your goal was to get me to look at this cover like it were a work of art and analyze it and try and understand its meaning, mission accomplished. So well, <laughs> well done. It was fun. Again, here's the cover. Uh, you- Penguin will love this. <laughs> it's just fun. I, you know, usually I get book covers that don't have as much uh, intrigue to them. So I, I appreciated that one, Todd. Oh, thank I you. Appreciate it. Well, anyway, let's wrap it up there. We could keep going for hours, but uh, I will spare my colleague, Aaron Reese, who edits this podcast, the uh, challenge of going through an hour and a half to two hour long podcast and editing it back and forth. So it's been a lot of fun and I hope we get an opportunity to meet in person and perhaps do another show. Listen, you are my favorite nonprofit organization on earth. I talk about you guys all the time. I think that fire is absolutely essential to society. And if there's any any an organization that's linked to the tenets and the philosophies and strategies in this book, it is fire. So thank you for existing. Well, I appreciate that plug. I appreciate that plug. The, this is Todd Cashdan. He is the author of the Art of Insubordination, How to do how to Dissent and Defy Effectively. If you do not buy the book for all the interesting stories and ideas he has inside it, buy it for the cover, which is also <laughs> itself interesting and artistic. This podcast is hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleague, Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, where you can see us talking live and also see me holding up the book, cover that we were just discussing. Most of our episodes, including this one, all have a video component to them. You can also follow us on Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We have a Facebook, facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. And importantly, we have an email for feedback at so to speak at the fire.org. Again, that email address is so to speak at the fire.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, enjoyed listening, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.